how bittersweet it is to say goodbye to staff, to dear friends, to brothers and sisters in Christ, to members of our family, our church family. There's no healthier and happier way to uh, send off your members than to follow God's calling in the mission field. And there's something healthy and good about that. Even as we grieve our parting, uh, we celebrate what God is doing. And I believe that he is at work in our midst. So I was pressing ahead in the text for this morning. We've been in the book of John over the last number of years, really, on and off. Um, but also thinking about a New Year's sermon, and our next text really led into that for me. It seemed to fit the bill, so I stuck with the plan. On our New Year's first Sunday, first Lord's Day of a new year, which... Uh, and the saints through history have always marked times like this, not in giving them some kind of superstitious value, but of using them as times to evaluate your life. I was reading, I think it was uh, John Newton, who has a system of how he examined his life at different times. And he, uh, each, each week he did this, each month he did this. On his birthday, he took, uh, around his birthday, he took a special time of half a day of reflection on who he is and what his Christian life looked like and, and where he was in his walk with God and was he growing. And the new year was one of those days that he marked that on, on the beginning of a new year that he would look at this new year as an opportunity to renew his passion and his love for Christ and, and to take a serious look at his life and at his walk to follow Jesus. This morning we are in John chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 12 to 30. Hear then God's word. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so the Pharisees said to him, You're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, and he said, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going, but you do not know where I came from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two men is true, and I am the one who bears witness about myself and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And they said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered him, he said, you, you know neither me nor my father, because if you knew me, you would know my father also. Now these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Because where I'm going, you cannot come. And so the Jews said to him, is he going to kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. But he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are from this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, then you will die in your sins. And so they said to him, who, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just as I have been telling you from the beginning. 
I've had much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. And they did not understand that he was been speaking to them about the Father. And so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing of my own authority, but just speak as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Even as he was saying these things, there were many who believed in him. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come to you on this first Lord's Day of a new year. Father, we are always up for a new beginning. We are always in need of starting again. And we long for you to carry forward that good work which you have begun in us. That you would renew within us that life, that power, that passion that comes with knowing you and loving you. So Father, even now would you speak to us this morning, renew us in our faith and call us forward into all that you have for us in a new year. But we ask and pray it in the strong name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Verse 29 is really where I wanted to spend a lot of my time. Verse 29 is, see it there, and he, Jesus says to them that he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Charles Spurgeon wrote a sermon, preached a sermon on that text, and he called the sermon um, the Christian's motto. Although that was great. He saw in this verse a summary statement that could be the Christian's motto as he approaches his, his whole life in following God and what it means to be a Christian contained in this verse. He who sent me is with me. He never leaves me alone. And I always do the things that are pleasing to him. A life full of God's presence and His power. And a life of holiness and obedience in following Him. Right? A pleasing life. You know, when it comes to pleasing the Father, there's one thing, as we read this larger text in this context, when it comes to pleasing the Father, there's one thing that you and I must do that Jesus can't do, doesn't need to do. And that we find in verse 24. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Uh, Jesus is calling these people, as He calls all people, to faith in Himself. That's something Jesus can't do, because He's the object of the faith. He is the one in whom, but he He calls this crowd, as He would call us this morning, to renew our faith in Him. As God's Messiah, as the Savior from our sins, as Jesus is interacting with this crowd, he is con- he is, as He is always doing, as He wrestles with the human race in every context, as you read the Gospels, and I think every Sunday and every day as He works with this world, He deals and He contends with people's unbelief. And so He, he is contending and wrestling with them over their lack of faith and the consequences that flow from that lack of faith. Right, verse 24, he basically is saying, if you won't believe, 
Right? If you won't believe that I am the one sent by God to save you, if you won't believe that I am the Messiah, if you won't believe that I am He, the one I have been telling you from the beginning, He says you'll die in your sins. Right? In the Gospel, when we talk about the Gospel and you hear that word, the Gospel is that statement only spoken positively. The good news is just the opposite, which is what Jesus is trying to tell them. The Gospel is, if you will put your faith in Me, if you will believe that I am He, then you won't die in your sins. I will save you from your sins. I will deliver you out of the penalty and the punishment that is due to your sins. This is the gospel. This is Jesus' message. It's His testimony. It's what He's been saying from the beginning. And so we get this whole passage about testimony. Right, as we started at the beginning, he says, I'm the light of the world. And then he says all these other things about himself as the one who can save them from their sins. And in verse 14, he's, they, you know, they challenge him. You're bearing witness about yourself. How do we know that what you're saying is true? We can't just believe any old Joe off the street and what he says. So in verse 14, Jesus you know, tells him, even if I do bear witness about myself, the testimony is true. I know what you could never know, where I came from, where I'm going, what my mission is. In verse 17, though, he moves on and he acknowledges the need for two witnesses. He says, in your law, it's written that the testimony of two men is true. The Old Testament law required the testimony of two people to establish the truth of something in a court. You know, one guy wasn't quite enough. You need a corroborating witness to bear witness to that witness to say that something is true and admissible in court. Now, this isn't a court of law. Jesus is out on the street with these guys, or uh, rather, he's in the temple, I believe, the treasury. It's not a court, but Jesus says, all right, by your own standards, let's go with that. And in verse 18, he goes on and he says, I've got another witness. I've got a, another witness. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father bears witness about me. I have a second now, when does the Father bear witness about the Son that these guys ought to pay attention to? Well, I don't know if they were there or not, but one of the places where that witness takes place is at Jesus' baptism, and heaven is open, the dove comes down, and the Father actually speaks and says, This is my beloved Son, He bears witness about Him, in whom I am well pleased, who always does what pleases the Father. The Father did bear witness. Now, whether they were there or not, they didn't need to be there to hear that because God's witness to Christ was manifest in His life throughout His ministry. It's there in your bulletin, John chapter 10, under the first verse. The first verse under the first point in your bulletin. It says this in John chapter 10, Jesus says to the crowd, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then fine, don't believe me. But if I am doing them, if I am manifesting in my life, in my ministry, the works of the Father, even though you don't believe me, you should believe those works. That you may know and understand that the Father is in me. Right? That I speak the Father's words, that this is the Father's message, that this is the Father's ministry, that He sent me into the world, that I am He who I have been claiming to be in your presence. He said, if you can't believe me, if you won't take my word for it, then do you not see the things? That God does at my hand. When the lame walk and the blind see and storms are calmed and food and bread is multiplied and the dead are raised. 
See the second verse I put there in your bulletin. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says just this. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That's what Jesus is saying to this crowd. How shall we escape unless you believe that I am he? You will die in your sins. How will we, how will we escape if we neglect this? And he says it was declared at first by the Lord Jesus. That's what this passage is about. Jesus is testifying, declaring this great salvation in himself. It was attested by those who heard it, the apostles who wrote this and who followed and bore witness to him. But then he goes on, he says, well, God also bore witness. Hebrews chapter 2, God bore witness by the signs and wonders and various miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. God bore witness first in the life of Jesus and then in the life and the ministry of the apostles and those who came after Jesus, establishing the church. That's how the church got its roots and its foundation laid was that throughout the ministry of the apostles as they were founding the New Testament church, God manifested his witness to the truth of the gospel in the lives of these men. And Jesus is saying, I've got a second. And you see it, you hear it. Verse 19, we're told the reason that they reject the clear testimony of God himself. They said, where is your father? And Jesus said, you don't know him. The problem here is you don't know God. You don't know the father. You don't recognize him. You don't don't know him or you would recognize him in my life and ministry. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. If you've heard me, you've heard the father. He says, you don't know him or you would recognize him. My sheep know my voice and and they hear me and they follow me. And he says, you don't know him or you would know me. If you knew me, you would also know my father. Right? And so they they don't know God and so they want to explain away the mighty acts of God. Because God himself has manifested his testimony in the, in the raising of the dead and all the things that he has done. And so they need to explain it away. And it's clear that there are acts of power going on. There are only so many sources of power in the universe, right? I don't know, as a Christian, I believe there are two sources of power. You know, and one is derivative from the other. The devil and God. God and Satan. And so at one point in Jesus' ministry, this group actually accuses Jesus when he is healing people. They actually accuse him. He's casting out demons. They said, you must be in league with the devil. Right? You You must draw your power to command demons from Satan himself. That's one option. Jesus gives them the other option. It's there in your bulletin, Luke chapter 11. And Jesus answers this accusation and he says, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You know, they accuse him of of deriving his power from this evil source. And Jesus says, wake up. The kingdom of God has manifested itself in your midst and you don't see it. You don't know it. Right? The kingdom is visible in the life and the power of King Jesus. And they're refusing to put their faith in Him. So verses 21 and 24, Jesus warns them of the consequences. The lack of faith in King Jesus as Messiah. The tragic consequences. He says that unless you believe that I am He, then you will die in your sins. And my friends, there is no greater terror and for a human being to die in their sins and to face God. 
The mission of the Messiah is to deliver people from the guilt and the punishment that is due for their sins. That's the mission of Messiah. That's what Jesus is all about. That's why he says the positive statement of that, if you will believe that I am he, I will deliver you from your sins. Right, we just celebrated Christmas and we talk about the birth of Jesus and why that is so important. And sure, the birth, there's a lot of miraculous things that happen around it that are interesting and fascinating to help to establish again the identity of this child. But the main thing about this child is why he was born. Right? And we talked about this at Christmas, Matthew chapter 1, it's there in your bulletin. That is, Jesus is, is, is conceived in Mary, the angel comes and tells her that, she is going to bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus because he's got a mission. He will save his people from their sins. That's what's so important about the birth of this child. That's what's going on here. The mission, Jesus, this is what Jesus, when he says, I know where I come from, and I know where I am going. Right? I was sent by the Father on a mission. I was born into this world to accomplish something, to save you. Jesus always did what the Father pleased him. And we see Colossians chapter 2 summing up this salvation. He says, having forgiven us all of our trespasses, all of our sins, canceling out the record of the debt that stood against us, of the legal demands of the law against our sin. Jesus, we're told, he set it aside by nailing it to the cross. Right, that it is on the cross that Jesus pays the debt for this sin and delivers us from it. Jesus, who always did what was pleasing to the Father, offered that perfectly pleasing life to the Father in our place to redeem, that our debt would be paid. So Jesus tells them, if you believe that I am He, I will deliver you from your sins. Right, it pleased the Father to send the Son to die on the cross to save us from our sins. And so it pleases the Father when we believe His testimony. Right? It pleases the Father when we believe the testimony of the Father that is given through the Son. The testimony of the Father's works in the life of His Son and the Apostles. Right? It pleases the Father when we put our faith and our trust in Christ. The reverse is true. If you haven't put your faith and trust in Christ, then we haven't done the first thing to please God. Right? So when it comes to this life, coming down to it as a motto of a Christian, that you know that he, he, is, he sent me, is with me, and He never leaves me alone, and I always do the things that please Him, that for us, the very first thing that pleases the Father is to believe His testimony and to put our faith in Christ, to believe on the Lord Jesus and to be saved. And then, when our faith is in Christ and our sin is forgiven and our fellowship is with the Father, he says, then this becomes our motto. The verse contains two crucial elements of a truly Christian life. Right? And Jesus touches on them both as he speaks of himself. And it, at this point, not in every point, but in this point, He is our pattern. He is our example. He is the one whom we follow and imitate in, in these things. And in these two key elements that are crucial in Jesus' life with the Father become crucial and foundational and essential in the life of anyone who knows the Father and follows Jesus. And that is the life of fellowship and a life of obedience and holiness. Right? The Father who sent me is always with me. And I'm never alone. 
there, there's a fellowship, there is a companionship, and, 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 and in, because of this, and out of this, and through this, and guaranteeing this, is this life of obedience and holiness. I always do what pleases Him. The opposite is also true. No one can claim a sincere fellowship with the Father who does not at the same time strive to do the things that please Him. Those two things are inseparable. You cannot claim a sincere fellowship with God who does not pursue these things. Look at 1 John chapter 1 in your bulletin under the second point. John writes and he says this, if we say that we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, that is we do not strive to do those things that please Him. He says if we say we have fellowship but we walk in darkness, we lie. We're not doing the truth, we don't practice the truth, we're not experiencing the truth, it's not true about us. He says, but if we walk in the light as He is in the light, then we have fellowship one with one another. Walking in the life and living this life pleasing to God is a non-negotiable. It's foundational. It, it is at the heart of the Christian life. It should be the Christian's motto that this is what I'm about. About the, the God who is with me and the life that flows out of that. So Paul, as he prays for the church in Colossae, the Colossian church, and he prays some really interesting things. And I think as we look at the prayers of Paul, they should be instructive to us in our own prayers. And as we think about praying for each other, if Paul were praying for us as a church, he would be praying this very thing for us. And as I pray for us as a church, there are a lot of things that we pray for each other in terms of our physical needs and and our suffering and our care, and there's a lot that goes on. But underneath all of that and foundational to that is the spiritual life. And Paul prays for that more often than he prays for anything else for the church. He prays for their spiritual life. And so Paul in Colossians 1, this is his prayer. It's here in your bulletin under the second point. He says, we have not ceased to pray for you. Asking that God, that God would fill you with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So that you would walk in a manner that is worthy of your Lord. That you would be fully pleasing to Him, right? Exactly what Jesus says He's about. Always do what is pleasing to Him. That you would be fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in your knowledge of God, that God who is with you, who sent you, who never leaves you, that you would be growing in your knowledge and your love for God and at the same time, striving and flowing out of that as a life pleasing to Him. So I want to spend the last few minutes of our time looking at Jesus' statement a little bit more closely when he says that I always do what pleases him because it's here that as as we look at a new year, I want to to come into that verse as our motto. Motto maybe isn't a great word, but that which defines us and fills our heart, that is our passion, that that we would be able to own this statement as our very own. I always do what pleases him. And always means just that. All the time. Every day, day and night, 24-7, constantly, continuously, I always do what pleases Him. And, and not only across time, not, does it not always mean all the time, but it also means in every area of my life. Always will mean then 
every nook and cranny of my life, when I'm at work and at home. When I am in public and when I am in private, I am the same man. And the same thing governs me. What is it? I always do the things that please Him. All the time. So, inside and out. And He says, I always do. It's not only always in all times and in all places and in every nook and cranny and corner of my life, but always means, He says, I always do what pleases the Father. And I do think that there is an active, positive thrust to what Jesus is saying here. If you look at his life, it clearly is an active, positive thrust in the life that Jesus led. In other words, sometimes we become reduced as Christians to defining our Christian life in terms of what we don't do. Right? And sometimes it's even proverbial and make fun of the, you know, I don't dance, I don't drink, I don't smoke, and I don't go with girls who do. Um, or, you know, we make that live if I can just, if I, you know, my Christian life, if I can just, you know, manage to not get angry, if I can just manage to not, you know, lust, if I can just manage to keep my pride under control, if I can just manage to not do this and not do that, if, if I can not lie and not cheat and not steal. I would say that certainly implied what we're not to do. But there is, I think, still this emphasis on doing. I do what pleases the Father. There's an active righteousness. There's an active pursuit of justice. The book of James reminds us that we're not to be hearers of the word only, but doers. Doers of the word. Active in the life that is pleasing to God with a positive thrust. As I thought about this, it comes out in in most of Jesus' parables about the Christian life. How positive the thrust in terms of what we do in in service and in obedience to the Father. I think of the, the parable of those who are waiting for the bridegroom who needed to keep oil in their lamps. To keep that their lamps would be filled when that moment came, when that time came where they were uh, to meet the bridegroom, that their 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 lamps were on fire, that there was, there was still fuel. I think of the parable of the talents where he gives one and three and five and, and he comes back and he wants to know what did they do with the talents that he had given them. I think of the parable of the sheep and the goats where, where he says that that day he will divide them out. And he asks them the question, you, you know, or he doesn't actually ask them. He makes a pronouncement and says, you didn't visit me when I was sick. You didn't care for me when I was hungry. You didn't clothe me when I was naked. You didn't You know, you didn't actively care for me. At the very end, he says, what makes a difference between them? He says, what they did and what they did not do. There is this active thrust to following Christ and the pattern of his, what it means to be Christ-like and to be, therefore, Christian. It's not just a private piety. And sometimes in, in the church Throughout the ages and and in various places, but in the American church, there's often this very private piety. It's me and the Lord, and we do our thing. There's no private piety in the Scripture. There's no this closed in, me and Jesus, and we go it alone. There is this giving and this sacrificing and caring and loving and serving and actively awake and alive to God and what He is doing in the world, and not just what He's doing in me. Paul David Tripp says, you will never win the battle, say in your bulletin under the final point, you will never win the battle with yourself simply by saying no to yourself. 
The battle only begins to be won when you say yes to the call of the King. For the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, wouldn't you, be, wouldn't you love to be able to say this statement? I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. I don't know if you at this point yet feel it or not. But for me, I read that statement and there's guilt that comes with it. Right? There's this pressure, there's this sense of, oh my God, how far short I fall of that ideal. Oh, how, how I wish and long that that would be true of me. That I could stand in front of a congregation and say, I always do what is pleasing to the Father. We all want to say that. We all want to get it right. We all want to feel like we could pull it off. We all want to not fail in pleasing our Father. But at the same time, you and I know that this is impossible. I mean, have you tried? I've, I mean, I've seriously tried. You know, I, I want this. Any genuine Christian wants this. But you'll know by experience that we don't pull this off the way that we would like to. Right? Our theology tells it to us. I mean, it's part of our Reformed tradition has been writings on perfectionism. And you can find them in B.B. Warfield and down through the Reformed writers, writings on perfectionism. The concept that we can't be perfect in this life. And, and understanding that biblically and then trying to understand, though, then who are we and what are we after? See, the temptation is, as we think about a new year and as we think about this whole thing, the temptation is to think that no one is perfect, right? And I can't do this, you know, <sighs> deep sigh, you know, I'm not alone in this, you know, to err is human. And the, the temptation, the danger is to think, well, I'm forgiven in Jesus, you know, we just went over that. He will deliver us from our sins if we will put our faith in Him. And the, the gospel is so true and free and awesome. And so the temptation is to say, well, my sins are forgiven. So why care? Why care about then this, this Christian motto? Why take it too seriously in the end? And so the temptation is to grow complacent in the Christian life. This is where I want to strike at us and comment our hearts this, this first Lord's Day of a new year is this issue of complacency. Because my friends, complacency is a kind of death. Complacency is not Christ-like. Complacency is not pleasing to the Father. And it is no place in the, in the life of one who longs to please Him. Christ-likeness, then, is always the goal. And we're never complacent about it. And it's not a vague desire that we have. It is the driving passion of a Christian life. It's to be like Christ and to please the Father. And that standard never falls. That standard never drops, right? The heart of a born-again believer is alive unto God and longs to be like the Christ who saves him. We want to be holy because He is holy. We want to walk in the light as He is in the light. We want to be pleasing because He is our Father. And so the goal never changes. The standard never drops. Being like Christ, pleasing God, is the passion of a believing life. 
Calvin says here in your bulletin in the last point, Calvin says, we are God's own. You are bought at a price. You are not your own. Therefore, let every part of our existence be directed towards Him as our only legitimate goal. And our first step should be then to take leave of ourselves and to apply all of our powers to the service of Christ. Right? That's always the goal. The standard doesn't drop. That's Christ's likeness. He lived a life unto God. But my friends, since we cannot succeed in this perfectly, we live in this tension. Do you feel it? That's the goal. It never changes. It never stops. The standard doesn't drop. That's our passion. That's our desire. That's the heart of a true believer. And yet we fail and we struggle and we know that I can't pull it off. And we have this tension that we live with. And it can create guilt. And sometimes then we'll try to drive our Christianity with guilt. Do better, do better, do better. Try harder, try harder, try harder. You're bad. Get up. What is the answer to this? What does a Christian, what does a healthy Christian life look like living in this tension when we have a heart for holiness and a heart to please Him? And it's this, when we stumble into sin, when we fail in this pursuit, when we are not who God calls us to be, when our passion is disappointed, we hate our sin. We grieve and we repent. Repentance is the way of life. Right? Repentance is that inward work where we come to God confessing our sin. And He enables us to hate it and to forsake it. It's that inward work where we come to God confessing our sin and He enables us to hate it and to forsake it. And then like David in Psalm 51, He creates within us a clean heart and He renews within us a right spirit. Right? And what is that clean heart and that right spirit? I always strive to do what pleases the Father. That's where the passion belongs. That's where we want to get back to. And repentance has not taken place until the heart has returned to that passion. Right? Do we understand that? We have some very weak ideas about repentance. Some very strange ideas about just feeling bad about things. And, and it's not about that. It's about getting your heart back. That's re- repentance is not taking place until you have your heart back. Right? And so repentance is going to Him and confessing until He enables us to hate it and to forsake it and to want to live a life that is always pleasing to Him, till that heart is back, till I can genuinely get up from my time with God, I can genuinely get up from His presence with, with, from His presence and walk into my life, and that is my genuine goal, my genuine desire, it is my passion again. And that's repentance, it's this, you see, this is why Martin Luther said his very first uh, thesis on the door of Wittenberg when he had the 99 thesis it started the Reformation and this is what he meant when he said that the, 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 when Jesus said to repent he meant that the whole life of a Christian was repentance because this is a cycle that takes place every hour every day throughout our days right my passion and my desire is to follow Christ and live a life that's pleasing to him but I stumble I fail I fall I'm weak I have some days that are worse than others some weeks that are worse than others you know, where you, months, they, 
But there is this cycle that we go through where repentance is coming and confessing and seeking the grace to be enabled to hate my sin and forsake it and to be renewed, to get my heart back. My passion to truly and honestly want to be free of my sin and live a life that is pleasing to the Father in an active righteousness and a pursuit of His kingdom. Renewed in dying to myself and following Jesus, being like Jesus, living a life worthy of His calling. And that's it. It's not a life of perfection. In some ways, it's a life of perfect repentance. The whole life of a Christian being one of perfection of repentance, knowing where our heart should be, pursuing God until our heart is there. My friends, as we start a new year, I just wanted to call us to take a hard look at our hearts. We grow complacent. I grow complacent. It doesn't matter what walk of life you're in, how long you've been walking with the Lord, how old you are, whether you're high school, college, working, or you've been a Christian for 50 years or five. The heart grows complacent. Which is why he calls us to repentance. Has your heart been compromised? Is, is it your passion to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord? Always. We start this new year seeking from God a new heart and a right spirit and a renewed passion. To be like Christ. To follow Christ. You seek the grace to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. That we might live lives pleasing to him. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we confess that living such a life is beyond our grasp. In ourselves, no good thing dwells. (laughs) We are weak. When the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. We stumble and we fall and thank you, God, that you remember our frame and that we are but dust. But I pray, Father, that as we start a new year, you would teach us what repentance is again. That you would awaken us from our complacency and that you would drive us to yourself without fear. No matter where we are and where we've gone, bring us to yourself, confessing our sin that we might be renewed in heart and spirit. That you might create within us a clean heart and a renewed spirit, and a genuine passion 